Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I love this church. You've gotten so much gospel on you already uh, that part of me is like we could go home full of gospel grace uh, already, and I love that, uh, but we're not going home. Instead, we're going to get some more. So be ready to lean in, not lean out, uh, but praise God for being able to sing the gospel, pray the gospel, hear the gospel preached, set under it, fellowship in the gospel, uh, and respond to that. So grateful uh, to serve. Why don't you pray with me one more time before we jump into God's word. Father, I do, I just, we give you glory for your grace and kindness, for the gospel of God's grace. We come as people formed by grace, chosen by grace, gathered by grace, singing of grace celebrating in grace, needing to grow in grace. Holy Spirit, would you pour out more? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Roger Beardmore writes, In evangelical circles today, we are witnessing the abuse of ecclesiastical authority in two directions. There is, on the one hand, an abdication of church authority by some. Confronted with the individualistic, anti-law spirit of our time, Cowardly church officers refuse to exercise the biblical oversight entrusted to them by Christ. In many circles, authoritative preaching and corrective church discipline are conspicuously absent. Equally dangerous, however, is the tendency by others to overreact against such laxity. Church leaders lose sight of the fine line between the virtue of biblical counsel and guidance and the vice of usurping control over the conscience. Counsel becomes control, control becomes coercion, and coercion becomes tyranny over the conscience. Leadership is hard work, especially in the church. And there are dangers in either direction to not lead with the strength and truth that you need to lead with or to not lead with the patience and grace and kindness that you need to lead with. We need lots of God's help to shepherd and lead God's church. And wouldn't you know that we come to the close of the first section of the book of Exodus in our study. The first 18 chapters that we've surveyed and studied together in this sermon series throughout this year, where we've watched and as Exodus opens up with Israel growing in number and suddenly Pharaoh and Egypt getting concerned about their number and determining to, uh, to control them and take them out and even seek to kill all the firstborn babies so that the deliverer would not rise up, that they would not join against or with their enemies against Egypt. And then Moses was preserved by God's grace, finds out that he's the deliverer, jumps the gun, Tries to do some stuff on his own strength, and the Lord is like, yeah, hit the brakes, young buck. You're not ready yet. <laughs> and then God prepares him, sends to Midian for a season, gives him a wife and children. And then there's this time where it's time for then Moses to go and deliver God's people. And God sends him to interact with Aaron and with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who'd been, again, holding God's people in bondage, 400 years of slavery and awful suffering. And to let Pharaoh know, Yahweh will be known as the one true God, the God who's more powerful than all the false gods of Egypt. And that he must let Egypt, his firstborn, or let Israel, his firstborn, go. And if he wouldn't, that God was going to punish uh, Egypt's firstborn. And then he sends forth the ten plagues, demonstrating with frogs and gnats and the water turning into blood and uh, uh, boils uh, on the skin, hail from the skies, all these demonstrations of his, his superiority over all the false gods in Egypt. Sends them forth showing there is one true God. All these other gods are no competition for him. Climaxing in the final plague, the death of the firstborn. When Israel would put forth a sacrifice lamb and blood over the door so that God's wrath and justice would pass over Israel as he brings forth his wrath and judgment upon Egypt. Then they were set free and sent out. And then 
uh, Pharaoh decides, no, 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 I still want to come get you. Chases them down. And by the Red Sea, God miraculously provides a cloud to protect them and to get them through the Red Sea, parts the Red Seas, and then brings the Red Sea uh, on and judgment upon Pharaoh and his army. God's people then sing in response because, as we said, saved people sing. Celebrating God's deliverance, that he has set them free, that he's rescued them from slavery, which is the theme of the first 18 chapters in Exodus. But then in between that moment and where we're at today, there's this time in the wilderness that as Spurgeon called, we've been jokingly calling Wilderness University, where God means to teach his people some valuable lessons. And we watched him show that you still don't trust me. Though I've set you free, though I've delivered you, you're still not trusting me to provide for your basic needs. And so let me show you supernaturally how I can provide water and mail, uh, 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 quail and manna from heaven to meet your basic needs. Let me show you how I can pr- protect you from your enemies by destroying the Amalekites who have come out and wickedly attacked you. And then we come to this final chapter before Sinai, before the law, before the commandments, before he's now going to show this is how you're my holy people. And do you know what chapter 18 is about? Leadership. Leadership is hard in the church. Leading God's people is difficult. There are errors to the right and left. But don't you know God's word is living and active? Somebody say God's word is alive. (laughs) Like we need to know, God, how do we lead your people? God has told us. He's instructed us. That's even what we turn to in Exodus chapter 18, this final section, uh, in this final chapter of Israel's uh, rescue from slavery. Now, chapter 19 and on following demonstrates now what does it look like? We're rescued to live a new life. We'll jump into that, Lord willing, in January of next year. For now, for this year, this is our final sermon in Exodus, and what a timely sermon and message God has for us. Two primary lessons. There's all kind of lessons in chapter 18. And you're going to catch like a bazillion of them. So just know you're about to catch a fire hydrant. Just buckle up. It is what it is. But two primary lessons that I want to put all those underneath. Lesson number one, we should celebrate God's grace. Lesson number two, we should lead with God's wisdom. So to be a great disciple or to be a great leader in the kingdom of God, to be great in the way God defines greatness and demonstrates his greatness in leading his people, we must celebrate God's grace and we need to lead with God's wisdom. First, we should celebrate God's grace. Again, look at chapter 18, the beginning of verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So first, I just want to point out a few things of how we should celebrate God's grace when we see evidence that God is at work. So how do you know God is at work? Often people will say God did something. 
But how do you know? No, no, this is evidence. I see signs that this is actually God at work. This is not just human ingenuity. This is not just they put on a dope program and they know how to manage a brand and they know how to gather people together and create momentum. This is like the God of the universe is doing something. How do you know how to discern that? When God works, what do we see? First, notice that in verse 1, the word of his work travels. Like when God is working, people start gossiping about that work. And I mean gossiping in a positive sense. Like not sinning, but it's like, yo, we're, like we're seeing something going on. And there's not a lot of explanations for this other than the one true God must be doing something. So this word had come to Jethro. And he had heard what the Lord had done. And notice the hero of all of these verses. This is what the Lord had done, what God had done, what the Lord had done, what God had done, what the Lord had done to deliver and set forth his people. And so Jethro gets word. The word of God, when he's working, travels. And I mean that as a double entendre. The word travels and the word travels, meaning the word about what he's doing travels, but then the gospel word, what he says, travels. (laughs) So it travels in such a way that demonstrates God is moving. And he gets the credit. That's the second observation, verse uh, 1. verse 1, and then look at 8 and 9. So Jethro hears all that the Lord God is doing, and then Moses tells him all that the Lord God has done. And Jethro rejoices in all the good that God had done for Israel. So notice God gets the credit. So when God's doing the work, the word travels, and when the word travels, it travels in such a way that God gets credit for the work that's being done. And in the midst of all that, how do you know, again, that God is working? We're reminded of his faithfulness. Did you notice in verses 2 through 4 when we get the names, Gershom and Eleazar? Now, at some point, Moses had sent his wife and his two, his two boys back to Jethro. So probably while in the wilderness, they were near Midian. He probably sends them back in that moment. So they had been separated at this point. But the two sons are named, a name that reminds Moses of God's faithfulness. That we were sojourners. We were exiles. We were like out of place. In Egypt for 400 years. And yet God was our help. He's our deliverer. And so Moses has named his kids so that he remembers God's faithfulness. He wants to make sure, no, no, we need reminders of God's faithfulness. So when God is working, his people are thinking about his faithfulness for his glory because his word is working. In the wilderness, God is my help and deliverer. Parents, just a little side note. Again, like we, I make jokes regularly because there's so many pregnant women in the building. But as you're thinking about naming your children, you don't have to do this as a Christian, but consider, might there be a name we give to our child that reminds us of his faithfulness? Might we do that? So again, you don't have to do that. It's not a law. It's, you know, it's not a commitment. You can name your kid whatever you want to name your kid to the glory of God and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But for my wife and I, we had those thoughts. Like Eden, my daughter. Like we want to be reminded that God created humanity to be in fellowship, to walk in the cool of the garden with him in paradise. That's God's heart and desire. Nias, my son, Ananias, Acts chapter 9, means the Lord is full of grace. Noah, our youngest, says, no, no, the Lord is faithful to his covenant people. He will deliver them even in the midst of the storm and wrath pouring out. He will set them free through the great ark, which is Christ. So again, there's these reminders of God's faithfulness, even right now in this moment, because God is working. But also notice with those reminders of his faithfulness and those particular names, we understand God is working when we're, we're reminded of our own identity. This is who you are, church. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a sojourner, or you're displaced, you're, you're a stranger. That's a part of who you are. Like, I'm out of place. I'm an alien. I'm an outcast. I don't fit. And if you don't feel that, you may not be a Christian. 
Like if you don't feel like, I don't fit comfortably here anywhere. No, 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 this is, God's people have always felt like this. This again, this, this was uh, the people of God in Egypt. Sojourners, but at the same time, saved, delivered, rescued, no longer in bondage. Is this not the Christian story? I was in bondage to sin and death. Sin was my master, but Christ Jesus saved me by grace alone through faith, and, and now I'm free. I'm saved. I'm no longer in bondage. But man, I don't fit here. That already but not yet tension, I'm already saved, but I'm not quite yet home. I'm on the way to the promised land. That's what we see in the wilderness lessons. That I've been set free, I really have been saved. But man, this don't quite fit at home. So Christian, remember in Christ, you are out of place, but he's never out of grace. <laughs> like you're, you don't fit. Like you should, you should feel that way. You might fit like, man, I don't quite fit in a political party. Amen. Of course you don't. You're a Christian. Like there's not a nice clean fit anywhere for Christians in this broken political world. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everything's equal. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, no, no, we, we fit with the people of God. And we fit with the people of God as we don't fit really anywhere else. You may not feel like you fit in your own family. You may not feel like you fit in your own culture naturally, ethnically. We may feel out of place. That's okay. God has got grace for us. He set us free. He's placed us in a new family, a new community, and he's taken us to the promised land. We were reminded of our identity when God is at work. When he's really moving, you're grounded. Your identity is on something that's not shaky, shaky the way politics is or the way broken families can be or the way broken cultures can be. You're founded on an identity that will be with you to glory. Second thing I want to bring to your attention about celebrating God's grace as it's at work is that God's great work often happens in the context of great hardships. Often when he moves, it's in the middle of difficulty and suffering. Look at verse 8 again. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So again, just notice in a fallen world, hardships are always included in God's great works. So you should not assume if I'm going through something, that means God is not with me. <laughs> no, no, God's great works are always happening in the context of a broken life in a broken world that often includes incredible hardships. You have to have Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 before 4. You have to have, no, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of mind and body and our own nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. you got to have that bad news first for the but God. Being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, alive, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show us immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ. You've got to have death, burial before resurrection. You've got to have hardship for redemption. This is the way of the Christian faith. This is the way of real life in a real world. God's great works often happen in the midst of great 
hardships. And in hindsight, hardships are pathways to more grace. Again, what have we been learning about Israel in the wilderness? What have they been doing? Grumbling, complaining, infighting, having to learn the same lessons over and over again, doubting God again, and God giving more grace. So often in those hardships, God is literally pouring out more grace on you because of even your own sin. <laughs> like this is God's kindness. Often our hardships are God's means of giving us even more grace. He set us free, but he's still continuing to free us and grow us and empower us to walk in the freedom he's given to us. Hardships sometimes are the result of your own sin. Sometimes they're a result of the evil one, Satan in the demonic realm. Sometimes they're a result of earthly enemies. But rest assured, whatever hardships come your way, our God will use to sanctify you and grow you more like Christ. Romans 8, 28 really is true. He really will work all things together for your good according to his purpose, which is to conform you to the image of Christ. And so these hardships are the means by which he's going to sanctify and bring you in more and more to conformity of Christ. Hardships are also opportunities for testifying to God's great work. Now, remember the book of Exodus. What's the point? Yahweh will be made known. His name will be recognized. First to his people, Exodus 10, we read about it. He makes real clear, Israel, you're going to know that I'm your deliverer. I'm your help. I've set you free from bondage. But also so that Egypt will know. All these false gods will find out you don't mess with Yahweh or you take the L. You lose. But also the Amalekites, they come and wickedly attacked Israel last week. And Yahweh demonstrates, no, 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 you don't attack my people. I take that personally. He takes them out because of the wicked attacks. But now notice another way Yahweh is making himself known. To a priest of Midian. Amalekites, a pagan people. And God determined he's going to punish their wickedness immediately by conquering them. But Jethro, a pagan priest of the Midianites, he's going to make himself known to him by converting him. So sometimes he's going to bring forth wrath and punishment upon his enemies. Sometimes he's going to bring forth conversion so that his enemies become his beloved. This is how he makes himself known. Look again at 18 verse 11. Look at Jethro's response. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, now I know Yahweh is greater than all gods. In verse 12, Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came in with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So at this moment, Jethro the Midianite is like, wait, 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 wait. Yahweh, he's the true God, greater than all gods. And maybe if you would stop right there, it's like, well, is that really a conversion? He doesn't stop there. He, he says, this name is superior than any other name. Then he says, I'm bringing sacrificial offerings of worship to this God. Then he gathers and has a meal with Aaron and Moses and the people of God. And what is true for the Christian Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven by where we must be saved except for the name of Jesus. And then we present a sacrificial offering to God, not of our own, but the Lamb of God, namely Jesus who died in our place and rose from the grave. That's the offering we present to God. We say, take this offering, the offering of your own son that you provided. And then what do we do? We eat the Lord's Supper together. We have a meal together. So Jethro, in this moment, this pagan priest says, Yahweh's the one supreme God. And I, I want to make sacrificial offering to him and gather with his people, now my people. God is answering his promise to Abraham in Genesis to bring blessing to the nations through his people. 
one of these nations, this moment, even right now with Jethro. Now I want to notice just a couple of, just the relationship between salvation and evangelism right here. God gives salvation to Israel through great hardship. Moses and Jethro in this moment are celebrating this fact. Moses proclaims Yahweh is the one who's done it. Jethro's converted. So just notice how this works. Salvation, celebration and proclamation, more salvation. This is what happens. God saves Israel, salvation. Jethro and Moses are celebrating, celebration. Moses is saying, no, no, it's Yahweh who's the one who's done this, proclamation. And then Jethro's converted, salvation. We ought to do evangelism. Personal evangelism ought to be motivated by gratitude that God has saved us. We should be a celebratory people. We should sing the joy of the Lord because we actually have it. Because he saved us from bondage. He saved us from sin. He set us free. So there should be a joy in us that leads to a proclamation from us of the God who did it. That then leads to salvation of other sinners, bringing them into the family, having the family meal. And notice you see a true conversion because of this confession of the Supreme One. This offering again to God in this family meal. I want to say a couple things about family evangelism, particularly for the members of King's Cross. So it can be encouraging and discouraging ministering to your own family who doesn't know the Lord. So just encourage you, family evangelism is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So make sure you do evangelism with your family in such a way that you get to keep running the long-term race. So don't be so super spiritual that you're running a sprint and now they don't want to talk to you for the next decade. (laughs) Like that's not helpful. So be bold in your proclamation, but let your proclamation be undergirded by this joy and this joy that leads you to love them. Notice when Jethro shows up, Moses gives him the, the, the appropriate customary greeting, bows and kisses him, bows down like gives a right kind of honor to his father-in-law and demonstrates that. And then they share of their well-being. They have common grace conversation about how are you doing? It's good to see you. I want to, like, it's good to be with you. Tell me, update me on life and tell me what's been going. Like, there's a love there. Jethro's not a convert at this point. And so, again, when you're loving on your family, understand you want to love them, you want to proclaim boldly, but you want to do this for the long haul, not just in the short term. And what does love look like? Well, Paul tells us love is patient and kind. How do you minister to your family? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let that describe your evangelism to your family for the long haul. And receive this encouragement from Charles Bridges in the Christian ministry. The seed, the gospel seed that you sow in your family. The seed may lie under the clouds till we lie there and then spring up. Be faithful. But also be faithful in the, in the ministry you have of encouragement to this church. If you're a member of this church, you have a responsibility to encourage and build up the body by celebrating grace. So you see God at work among the members in this church, tell them. Paul models this so well in the epistles. He opens up with encouragement. It's like this one, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see hardships and joy together right there. So that you may become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you see God at work in the life of your brother or sister, tell them. Encourage them. If you see those who are suffering, point them to his promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If you see someone going astray, restore them in a spirit of gentleness and humility, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Whatever encouragement someone needs in this church, you ought to give it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is a way we celebrate God's grace at work in Christ. And may he get all the glory as we're reminded of his faithfulness and of our identity. And King's Cross, let me take a second. I don't want to do too much of this, but we're coming up on a five-year anniversary for our church. And the Lord has been so faithful to us. Fourteen of us in a basement at Magnolia Street Baptist Church, crusty, dirty basement. <laughs> Cross Fellowship was like, pump the brakes, we want to get in on this conversation. And so we, we launch and we move over and launch in November over in uh, Kaiser Middle School, where every Sunday morning there's the lingering smell of square pizza and tater tots. <laughs> Ooh, I don't miss that smell. And then we get to move down to Eugene Street on Easter Sunday. That Sunday, the, our first Easter together, baptisms, and the Lord was so kind and we were so encouraged. And then just before our second anniversary, we find out on a Friday night, you can't meet here because of a fire code issue you had nothing to do with and you knew nothing about. So Sunday nights, we have to move here and we come worship in here on Sunday nights at Parkway Baptist Church. Five months wandering around the wilderness. That was our joke, wilderness lessons. We, we had wilderness you long before we got to uh, Exodus. And in the middle of that wondering, trying to figure out, trying to find someplace every week, couldn't find anywhere to meet. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and then into COVID, Parkway merges in with us, gives us the property and says, let's keep gospel going. And for two years, we've just been grinding and trying to renovate. Lord willing, in January, we'll send out our first church plant. Lord willing, actually coming into the fall, we're going to move. We're in this renovated space and we're not going to have enough room. <laughs> so pray for wisdom. We don't know what to do. <laughs> like... But look at God's kindness. People are growing in grace. People are coming to faith. People are discipling each other. People are uh, holding each other accountable. We're seeing God move in all of these ways. He's been so kind to us, King's Cross. He's been so kind to us. Pastor Hez is preaching at Pioneer Church in Rock Hill, who we support this morning for their anniversary. Pastor Cameron's preaching at uh, Pleasant Garden Baptist Church, who wants to support the plant uh, going out, even in our city. We're partnering with good gospel work in Puerto Rico and Portugal and India and the Middle East and Birmingham, Birmingham, England in the Pillar Network. God has been so kind to us. And babies, so many babies. <laughs> like God has been so kind. We ought to celebrate his grace as a church. Second lesson, we should lead with God's wisdom. So there's a clear problem. There's a solution offered and then there's the results. Look, look at leading with God's wisdom. The problem, too much work for one man. Look at verse 13. The next day Moses set out to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. 
Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. All kinds of lessons about ministry. Elders of King's Cross, ministry leaders, deacons in King's Cross, aspire, equip folks, those longing or desiring or interested in being a pastor, you should lean in. So many lessons from God's word right here about ministry and leadership in general, but even discipling ministry. So parents, lean in. Those who are just trying to be faithful and make disciples should be every Christian. Lean in. Ministry leadership is hard work. Look again, verse 13, long hours, morning till evening. What is ministry leadership like? It's like showing up at the DMV and looking at that line. <laughs> That's Moses' experience. Good night, look at this long line. <laughs> morning till evening. Ministry can be hard. As long as there are people, there's still work to do. That's why I love mowing grass. <laughs> I love mowing grass. You can ask my wife, I love mowing grass. Like when I get done and there are those, even if my, my, my grass ain't even that good, but those straight lines and when I weed eat, make the edge and those straight lines, it's like I get done and then, oh, it's just, it's finished. It's done. Everything's put together. Ministry never feels that way, ever. <laughs> like there's never straight lines. It's never all done. There's always more work to be done. So again, ministry can be long, difficult work. Notice also at the beginning of verse 14, it can be lonely work. Moses at this moment is doing it alone. Ministry can be lonely work. It's also hard work. There are overwhelming needs. All the people are bringing all of these issues to Moses. But it's also not just overwhelming needs. They're legit needs. They're coming to inquire of God. That's a good, like this is what's so difficult about ministry. Like when people are bringing problems, they want to know what God has to say and how, how they ought to follow God. That's a good thing. You, you always want to figure out how, how can I help meet that need. This is where Moses is at in this moment. The Apostle Paul says, apart from other things, all his sufferings, there's a daily pressure on me of all my anxiety for the churches. And then notice there's relational tensions in verse 16. So there's controversy. And, and, and Moses is having to lead and reconcile people. So much of ministry is just dealing with relational conflict. I can, just as a normal, faithful, humble, ordinary pastor, could have four or five straight meetings where all of them in, involve different, complex, relational tensions that are trying to be relieved. <laughs> can be an exhausting work. And then there is just the fact, again, verse 16, that you're teaching on behalf of God. So this is not just those relational tensions. They're coming to say, hey, what does God say about these relational tensions? And you got to go and pray, and you're talking, and you're praying and, and representing God to them and them to God. And you got to understand, I'm going to stand before God on judgment and account for what I said about God. And if I lied about him, like, we're going to account for that. And so there's a tension. There's a weightiness. This is why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Young, aspiring pastors, be humble and understand you're asking for greater judgment. Let that bring forth a right sobriety. But notice what Jethro says, verse 17. This is not good. This kind of leadership should not be done alone. This is not good. This is one of the reasons we believe the New Testament, when it teaches the plurality of elders, that a church should be led by a plurality of elders. That's not a new concept or idea. That's what we see even right here in Exodus 18. As soon as God's people are being formed and leadership is being put in place, that there ought to be a plurality of leaders, not just a one-man show. A one-man show leads to all kinds of problems. No, God is putting in place, even in this moment, we see through Jethro teaching Moses. But it's also, we, we also understand in the New Testament we have the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is given to the whole church, not just the pastors. So that's why I said everybody needs to lean in. 
Everybody in this room ought to care about spiritual leadership and about raising up other leaders, disciples of Christ. And so we all must lean in and understand we're all to represent and make disciples by teaching them to obey all that God has commanded in Christ. And this means we all need each other. This is why church membership is so important. It's why we pray and covenant with members and take membership so seriously. Because the scripture says in in Romans chapter 12, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, like you can do the Christian life by yourself. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If you're a Christian, you belong to the whole body, not to yourself. And the whole body belongs to you. And God has given out different gifts to different members in order for the body's health. So, think, I mean, just think about how much of the New Testament you cannot obey if you don't take church membership seriously. Like all of the one another is in, involve another. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to do church at home. Is there anybody else even at home? Like you can't, if, there's not, if you're not in community doing one another's, you can't even obey most of the New Testament commands. So again, church, we need one another. We've got to disciple one another. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to equip one another. We cannot do the Christian life alone. But I also want you to notice that loving feedback is critical for discipleship and for raising up spiritual leaders. Loving feedback and critique is the gift that keeps on giving. Because you get that feedback And God means to use it to sanctify you and grow you so that as you continue to grow, you continue to grow. (laughs) You don't stop growing. You continue to learn. You continue to develop. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Notice what Jethro says to Moses. He says, this is not good. So it's not like, Moses, my goodness, look at all the work you're doing. You're such an amazing man. (laughs) You're incredible. (laughs) He said, y'all, what are you doing? This is not good, bro. Like, this doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Like, do you see this line? You're never going to get to all them. This is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. It's going to burn you out. It's going to burn them out. So one man's show is disaster for the man and for the, and the flock. This is what he's showing. And then he tells them explicitly, you're not strong enough. You can't handle this. You can't do it alone. This is hard critique for a leader. Especially, catch this, if you're getting it from your father-in-law. <laughs> Who's a new convert? <laughs> you're like, Dad, bro, you've been converted for like five minutes. <laughs> Like, and you're going to come tell me how to run Israel? I'm the great Moses. Like, think about this moment. This is a unique moment. A brand new convert who is your father-in-law, who was just formerly a, a pagan priest, is now telling you what you're doing wrong with God's people. It's an incredible moment for Moses. It reminds me of Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Listen, an enemy is fine to make you feel good about you, just so long as you feel good about them. A friend wants you to know what's best for you, no matter how you feel about them. Now, they want to deliver it to you in the best possible, most loving way, but they want you to know what's good for you. Do you have these kinds of friends? Are you this kind of friend? Are you willing to step to one you love and respect and give honest feedback, honest critique when they're doing something that's not good? It's not good for them or those who they're trying to impact. How do you respond when you get this kind of feedback? Are you defensive and quick to make excuses? Like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's just yada, yada, yada. Like, I, like Moses could have made some excuses. I saw God in a burning bush. <laughs> like, you don't have that excuse. Moses did. <laughs> like, do you make excuses or do you understand? No, no, I need to be helped. I need critique and feedback. I need people to point out the places where I'm not following God's wisdom. You should be grateful when people give feedback. It's a gift from God to help you become who God means you to be. 
Great leaders must first be great followers of God and the wisdom he brings, even when he does it through a new convert. So mature Christians, be warned. Don't be so arrogant you don't think that new believer can teach you something. It may be that God means to humble you and teach you something through that new believer so that you don't forget who you are and who God is. In order to lead with God's wisdom, you must first follow it. I think too many people, especially young people in my observations anecdotally, are out here trying to change the world while relying on their own wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. And you see that pop up as soon as they reject the wisdom that comes to them from God through other faithful Christians and run and do something against that wisdom. So let's see how Jethro offers a solution and then how Moses responds. Look at the solution. Verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. One scholar helps us understand kind of politically what's happening. In his role as Israel's management consultant, Jethro proposed a new form of government. It was partly a judicial system, a way of deciding legal cases, with Moses serving as a chief justice. It was also a plan for providing pastoral care for the people of God. Jethro was a new believer, but had organizational wisdom. Just a few observations about this wisdom and about the solution Jethro is offering here. Great disciplers, great leaders, give feedback for the good of the one they're critiquing. So we talked about the value of feedback. But notice, he's, he's giving uh, this feedback for Moses' good. Like any follower can point out a problem. And just to be a little provocative, any moron can point out a problem. Right? It doesn't take any wisdom to point out something's broken in a broken world. There's lots of broken things. Everybody can see that, right? But no, but a great leader, a great disciple might point out a problem, but then say, and here, let me offer a solution with humble reliance on God, not on the wisdom of the one who's offering the solution. So notice he says to Moses, obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. So he's not saying, no, no, I'm the man. I got all the advice. Do what I say. No, no, I'm going to give you advice and God be with you. Lean upon him. So there's this humility that's depending upon God. And there is this critique that's giving feedback. But then there's an offer of a solution. Great disciples and leaders offer solutions humbly relying upon God. Also notice they not only critique what is wrong, but they affirm what's right. And in the second part of verse 19 and verse 20, he's affirming, no, 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 you, you should represent the people before God and God to the people and give them the statutes and laws. And we haven't got to the Ten Commandments yet. That's, that's coming. But clearly there's some statutes and laws and how they interact. And he's like, no, no, what you're doing is right. So as we give feedback to one another and encourage one another, we also, also ought to give affirmation. And where we have right desires and good thoughts, we affirm those things. Brother, sister, I, see, I know this is what you're trying to do. Here's what I think the Scripture would say about a better way to do that. This is not good. That desire is, here's a better way forward. Great disciples and leaders also aim to increase the team with qualified leaders. So when we give these solutions, it's never about just the individual we're talking to. It's also about that individual reaching and teaching other individuals. Because we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to be thinking as disciplers all the time. And this is what we see. And notice that, that Jethro gives advice on the kind of leaders that ought to be reproduced, the kind of men that, need to be, that Moses needs to be looking for. He gives kind of four descriptions. First, they must be able men. 
They must be able to do the task. They must be able to gather and oversee a particular people and do these things and handle a particular set of these matters. Secondly, they must fear God. So they've got to be able to do the task, but then you've got to just look at, hey, if they don't fear God, disqualified from the whole conversation to begin with. Like you cannot fear a person's approval and actually lead them. You can't. Like if you're a slave to what they think of you, you will not do what's best for them. You'll do what's best for you and their opinion of you. So he said, they got to fear God more than they fear man. They've got to, they got to think about, I'm going to stand before God on judgment day. I'm going to give account to him. And therefore, I'm going to tell them what I think is best in the most loving way, affirming everything I can affirm. But they must fear God. They must care more about what God thinks about any given circumstance than what any human being does. The psalmist in Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to follow God's wisdom, you've got to fear the Lord. That's the foundational belief. But also notice he says they must be trustworthy. So they've got to have right relationship with God, but also right relationship with people. They've got to be a person of integrity, a leader with integrity, one who understands or, or lives a certain life that people are like, no, no, I trust the character of that individual. And lastly, they must hate a bribe. So right relationship with God, right relationship with people, and right relationship with money. And I think this is such a warning. And I think you could take out money and put in approval. You could take out money and put in pleasure. You could take out money and put in all kinds of, of, of idols. But notice Moses, Jethro is telling Moses, no, no, no. If you want to see injustice, let me tell you the quickest way to get injustice. Find a man who does not fear God, who is not trustworthy, and who loves money. Give him power. Guarantee you'll see injustice. You want to see justice and care? He's got to be able to do the work. He's got to fear God. He's got to be trustworthy. And he hates a bribe. Like you're not going to buy him. You're not going to purchase his allegiance with your money. Because his allegiance is to God. Great disciples and leaders then delegate authority and responsibility. While recognizing leaders need to be led. So Jethro, humbly relying on God, encourages Moses that solution is to delegate to godly, trustworthy, non-greedy men. So again, in order to lead with God's wisdom, you must first follow it. And let's look at the results. And we'll conclude with those. The result, God leads, leaders and followers flourish. Look at verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. So again, what do we see? When the people of God are led by the wisdom of God, rather than the wisdom of man, then despite hardships, leaders and followers flourish in peace. There's a peace. Like when we rely on God's wisdom and not our own, there's a greater peace for the leaders leading and for the followers following. And Moses models for us that great leaders led by the wisdom of God keep learning and becoming better leaders. So he hears, he takes heed to this lesson from Jethro. He grows from it and he applies it and lives it out, demonstrating for us even Moses had to keep learning and growing as a leader. And also notice great leaders led by the wisdom of God stay humble. We must be concerned for the glory of God and the flourishing of all of his followers, not for the personal attention we can get. I would recommend an album called Attention by Jonathan Solomon to teach the exact same lesson. That's what the album's about. It's exactly what it's about. It's, no, 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 we must lead for the glory of God. Attention belongs to him. Credit goes to him, not to us. That's what then leads to 
us flourishing and them flourishing. Notice how God rigs this, this story and this scenario to keep both Jethro and Moses, who are ex- extraordinary leaders in this moment, but he keeps both of them humble. Jethro's a new believer, and he just gave advice to Moses, and Moses listened. And yet he kind of fades to the backdrop. Not immediately like, oh, you're my, you're my assistant, you're co-leading with, no position. Just kind of fades to the back of the story. Because we're going to Sinai, we're about to get law, we're about to, and Jethro is not getting all kinds of glory. So he, he leads as a new believer, does something incredible, and kind of falls to the side, stays humble. Moses in this moment has to learn from a new believer about raising up leaders. leaders. And when he raises up leaders, surely that's going to take some of his shine. Other people impacting and leading other people, so he's not the one fixing all the conflict. So God in his wisdom keeps Moses and Jethro humble. God's wisdom leads leaders to focus on raising up more leaders. Moses continues to lead, but he does so through a a plurality of qualified leaders. Now, I want to conclude by just pointing out a couple of practical things for the church. Again, this is why if you go read 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications of elders, you're going to see they must be able to teach. They They have to be able to do the task. Everything else is going to basically say they've got to fear God and be trustworthy. <laughs> and they've got to hate a bribe. He cannot be a lover of money. So Paul's going to pick up on this and put this in place in 1 Timothy 3. I want you to know, King's Cross, this is why the elders give so much time to raising up other leaders in the church. It's not just because like, we get a kick out of that. We believe that's the best wisdom given to us from God. And for your flourishing and our flourishing, it is our job to continue to raise up and delegate authority and responsibility to other leaders. And all the ministry leaders in our church, there's wisdom in team leadership. Like, don't do the one-man show thing. Always be looking to disciple. And at some level, as a Christian, always be thinking, I want to work myself out of a job. I want to live and labor in such a way that I'm not needed. So that he gets the glory, they get the good, and I get the joy in the midst of it all. There's wisdom in team leadership. Even the apostles viewed themselves this way. 1 Peter chapter 5. The apostle Peter. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder... Peter witnessed the life of Christ. And he he says, I'm exhorting you elders as a fellow elder, as as an equal, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, financial gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is the senior pastor, Jesus himself, appears... You receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are younger. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, leads his church through faithful under shepherds. The work is too much for one man. And that's fine because the work in the church is not built on one man. It's built on the God man. Christ, who's truly God and truly man. Who says he's the one that's building his church. And he'll do it through faithful under-shepherds. He needs not one. He's sufficient in and of himself, and he, but he does it through faithful under-shepherds. I do want you to uh, close with considering he chose 12 men. One of those didn't hate a bribe, loved a bribe, took a bribe, and that's the very means by which Christ was crucified. Now, does that mean Christ messed up in choosing Judas? No, we know that's not the case. He said all along, one of you is going to betray me. This is going to fulfill scripture. But he's also the God who demonstrates my grace comes through hardships. And that our God is the God of grace who says the ultimate hardship will be mine on the cross. I'll be betrayed by one of my followers. I'll be crucified and dead and, and in the place of sinners. But on the third day, I will rise. 
so that I can give grace. And it's this Christ, this God-man, who shepherds and leads his church. So therefore, as his church, we should celebrate his grace. And we should lead with his wisdom. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ.